My name is Emily Costa, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts, Rob Frawley. Hello. And Noah Guyberson. Howdy. With a very exciting special episode of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. So, in a typical episode, which you guys are probably fairly used to by now, we share facts and have a quiz, but for the next three weeks, to get everybody super hyped for our live show at Caveat on March 25th, 9 p.m., Lower East Side. Woo! Be there or be square. Um, We are instead getting down to quizness and releasing three consecutive episodes that are all quizzes. AKA everyone's favorite part of the podcast generally, but now we're just kind of bowing to everyone's desires in doing this, but it'll never happen again, so don't get too excited. Okay. I mean, it might might happen It might. It might. It might. I'm just trying to... Raise expectations and then lower them subsequently, (laughs) appropriately. So, basically, the premise behind this is that we are doing our live show entirely about the brain. Woohoo! And as Noah (laughs) just expressed, he's very enthusiastic because as a neuroscientist, that is entirely his roundhouse. And we're all very happy for him, but also a bit envious. So, our quizzes will focus on organs that are not the brain, but rather the organs that Rob and I are most interested in. Namely, lungs, in my case... And bones. And then Noah is doing something. I don't know. You'll find out in a few weeks. It's a surprise. (laughs) That makes me nervous. Uh, Also, I I hate to make this an intervention, but Emily, we need to talk about your use of the phrase roundhouse. (laughs) Because that's twice this week. It's like Walker, Texas Ranger. Like, you know, roundhouse It's a flying kick to the head. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm feeling a little punchy this week or a little kicky this week. I don't know. It's just, cut me some slack. I just, I just wonder if you might prefer wheelhouse. Oh! <laughs> so you know, there are those things that you say wrong your entire life, and then one day you just find out. Was this like, that ah. moment? I mean, this is kind of that moment. I think I just thought they were both the same. Do you remember wheels are round? They're on buses. Do you remember that is our... the entire premise of wheels on buses? Do you remember our sports ball episode where one of the questions was <laughs> no. the origin of the term wheelhouse? Oh, yeah. Coming from, uh, well, as far as I could tell, baseball, where it's the arc of your swing. Yes, like, that's mm-hmm. right. In your wheelhouse is like from baseball. Right. So it's not even about wheels. Yeah, right. I'm just completely yeah. off base. Or houses. It's <laughs> most shockingly like. I will say totally unrelatedly, I found out about two weeks ago that the abbreviation OFC is not of course, like OFC, but it's of fucking course. And I've just been using that as shorthand for of course. And I'm afraid I've been like assenting to people very aggressively for the past few years without meaning to. I definitely thought it was of course. Yeah, apparently it's It's of fucking course. It's like uh, of C, (laughs) bud. Exactly, exactly. I am V of C, happy to see you. Yeah, so I apologize to anyone who was like, she is way too certain about this to a degree that I feel uncomfortable with. That was not my intent. What kind of things were you incredibly certain about? Just kind of like, oh, like, I'm not sure. Like, what do you think about this? Should I do this? Oh, fucking. I mean, actually, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm trying to think. There were some that were just kind of very benign of like, oh, like, of course, this is how this would go. It's totally fine. 
you know, but I'd be like, of fucking course. And then something just completely benign and pleasant. And it's like, okay. <laughs> was it ever somebody like, hey, this was cool. We should get coffee soon. And you're like, oh, fucking course. Yes. Yes. Precisely. Emily thinks that. she's trying to play it cool. I'm amazed. <laughs> I still have friends. <laughs> well, or do nice. I? Of fucking course. Okay. So uh, with that, let's move along to our first quiz of the three. And that's mine. So you guys ready for this jelly? A, a fucking, fucking course. course. <laughs> Damn it. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, nice. All right. So I like the lungs. I study the lungs. I spend a lot of time each day thinking about the lungs. So my quiz is going to be about the lungs. So prepare to be hyper aware of your breathing for the next roughly 10 minutes. Oh, oh boy. Just put Don't your overthink. lips together and blow. <laughs> That's how I get air in. We're going to do do so bad on this. That's a a start. We're off to a start. Okay. (laughs) Question one. If fully dissected and flattened out, so you take out all the bronchi and the bronchioles, the bigger branches and the smaller branches in your lungs, and all the alveoli, which are those little air sacs at the bottom of those uh, that are covered in capillaries where gas exchange occurs, you take all that shit, you roll it out flat. Uh, The surface area of your lungs, upon doing that, it's roughly equal to the area of what? So I have a couple of options here, okay. so you're not just kind of casting about. Mm-hmm. A, a squash court. Okay. B, a tennis court. C, a football field. And D, the state of Florida. And I do have the actual square footage mileage for That's all like of those, if that would be logarithmic. helpful. It's <laughs> some sort yes. of exponential. <laughs> Yeah, because I have trouble even knowing how much bigger a tennis court is than a squash court, but I know it's smaller than Florida. <laughs> I mean, I also sort of generally think of Florida as just being tiled by football fields. <laughs> I don't think they'd mind that. But I I mean, so this is a question of surface area, because as mm-hmm. you've intimated, and this is definitely, mm-hmm. you know, not to bring everything back to the brain, but this is also a brain thing, because like there's all these folds in the brain, and that mm-hmm. dramatically increases the sort of, you know, the surface area that's available in a enclosed space. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that the lungs are kind of working with a similar issue, because they need as much surface area as possible to get as much oxygen out of the air as they can. Yeah. Right. So we can we can think about this in volume, right? You, your tidal volume is probably two liters, give or take. Most people can like, actually it's <clears throat> six in the average adult male. You tidal? You dummy. Like yeah. Really? Yeah. What is and also what is that? Okay, sorry. So, <laughs> so I, the the amount of air that you breathe in and out. Okay. Um, I would have. Oh, guessed, like ebb and flow kind of tidal. Yeah. Is that which, what it's called? That's that's appropriate. Poetic. I right? really like that. Yeah. Which is not like the capacity, because there's uh-huh. like kind of like a standing volume in your lungs right. that like it'll never be less than. Oh, it might be. Yeah, I yeah. think my figure's capacity. That's right. That's I, what it is. Yeah. Because and I, I only know two liters because there's a cool game you can play where you have a um, a soda bottle full of water and you mm-hmm. invert it in a, a tank and then you put a like a hose or a straw in and you can push the air into the soda bottle and push the water out of it. Ooh. And so the game is, mm. can you empty the soda bottle? And most adults, or like most people that I've done this with at crazy frat parties. Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of yeah. frat parties where you're pushing water through yeah. a, t- a tube. Yeah. It's like, what's your title volume, bro? <laughs> Is that like the engineering Some kind frat? Of hazing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. <laughs> but it's, it's a good challenge to empty a two liter bottle for most people, um, okay. I think. And that's how I like roughly remember my title volume, which is. Yeah, like they're they're like I forget. There's all kinds of like ways of measuring. There's like the extreme volume, like total capacity, like something that's like stress volume, where like okay. you, 
if you breathe in as hard as you could, like you could get more air. But, but then you don't you don't get a hundred percent of the oxygen that you breathe in into your blood. And the reason I know that is because that's why CPR works. Because you can actually when you mm. exhale into someone's mouth. You are actually, infl- I think, I mean, I don't want to say this and then people try it. <laughs> I mean, wait, okay, actually, do try CPR. We've established that that works. If you were trained, you should go get trained in CPR. It's great. But I, what I understand is that you only intake, like, I don't know, 60-something percent. Let's just say you have some substantial amount of oxygen left over in the air you exhale, mm-hmm. even though oxygen and carbon dioxide have been exchanged in the lungs. Yeah. So so we're, we're trying to get to from like the volume that your lungs can take in, let's say it's like whatever max volume and then like the surface area that would be required to take in enough oxygen. And I don't think the biomechanics of that are going to be attainable for us in the time frame of this question. Okay. So let's just think like if we have a something the size of a lung and then we like s- just kind of smushed it out. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> certainly one way to do it. <laughs> I, I was going to propose that okay. if we imagined like a millimeter deep uh, amount of water for mm-hmm. two liters, okay. how much surface area is that? And then is a millimeter insanely tall for the amount of gas that we want? And should it be more like a micrometer? And then we just do a factor of a thousand up. Is that like an odd? Isn't, um, isn't there some sort of like volumetric? Cubic, like... cubic centimeters. Right. Um, cubic centimeters. Right. So, yeah. so what's the... So, um, conversion there, uh, and let's also what, get after it. Yeah, what, I'm working here. <laughs> this is meant to be just kind of like a. Well, this is like a silly starting question, but we can start chatting about lungs and lung anatomy. And I mean, I, I'm loving All this. Right, so, so, okay, so I like I like where your head's at. Yeah. How how mile wide, so to speak, and in, in an inch deep, also so to speak, is yeah. this millimeter? So <laughs> millimeter so, deep and X wide. Yeah. So we've got if we say two. 2,000 milliliters of okay. gas. And then in a, a cubic centimeter is a milliliter. Mm-hmm. So if we first put into cubic centimeters, you should get, oh, is this right? A 10 by 20 centimeter? No, I'm off by a factor of something. Rob, I got distracted so long ago. <laughs> I just want you to finish this calculation and tell me what to say. Okay. I, my, my guess is that if we're going for a 100 meter, say 100 meter field... Okay. And we covered it in one millimeter of 100 water. 100 square meter field. Which would be like two football fields, like side yeah, by side. Yeah, roughly. But like, just for, Let's just, for the heck of it. Yeah, very roughly. Yeah. yeah. 100 by 100 by one millimeter, millimeter. is going to get us... I can't I can't do it. I give up. <laughs> okay. I say... I think it's a football field. I don't field. think Florida. I go f- football field. Yeah, same. <laughs> okay, it was a tennis court. Yay, we're uh, here. Uh, <laughs> good thing we did all that. Wow, your so lungs about, are pathetic. So, <laughs> My lungs so about twenty eight hundred square feet for doubles size. Damn, um, okay. Uh, so also to drop a few more metrics, if you follow the length of the airways in your lungs, you'll traverse about fifteen hundred miles, or the distance from Chicago to Vegas, and. Uh, well, we talked about capacity, so I'll skip that. Um, but also, pretty cool, you inhale about 2,000 gallons, or a swimming pool, um, of air per day. Which I have to say, on a day that you don't accomplish much else, that's still a pretty impressive sounding thing to at least say. Like, you know? <laughs> I mean, I certainly would do that if I couldn't swim. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I also apologize for all the math and unusable radio that we just created. <laughs> We are scientists. Don't trust us. I totally heard like I was my mind filled in like we are scientists. Bum, dun, 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 dun. 
Anyways. (laughs) All right. Question two. This is a great tape. Okay. Uh, Question two. What can travel distances up to 26 feet through the air as a multi-phase, turbulent, buoyant cloud? Oh, a cough. cough. Yeah. 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 A cough. I I was going to say a lung. (laughs) 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 If you you just smush up a lung like we were talking about before and just fire it out of a can. (laughs) (laughs) No? Okay. Just sound pretty turbulent. So, cough. We'll go with cough. I think cough. Okay, cough. Yeah, so yeah, sneeze or a cough. Um, okay, yeah. Or per the publications that I'm citing here, uh, a violent expiratory event is the blanket <laughs> term for the both of them. So in a series of publications by mathematicians and fluid mechanics researchers at MIT, uh, it demonstrated that through taking and analyzing these very detailed and honestly, I mean, disgusting, uh, slow-mo videos <laughs> of a lot of sneezing volunteers, um, that larger droplets that are expelled by the sneezer actually remain suspended in their own sort of like medium, like a, <laughs> yeah. a, a snot cloud, if you will. Um, like a that's- ghost. it's sort of like ectoplasm it just sort of all keeps together yeah just your your illness just personified Um, (laughs) you can literally sneeze your ghost out (laughs) you you cough so hard that you hack up your soul wait so wait oh sneezing as exorcism is like way more badass now (laughs) oh yeah i like that the power of christ compels you Ah, I had an out-of-a-body experience, and I infected someone. (laughs) But, yeah, so this cloud is less dense than the surrounding air, um, which then allows it and all the contagious microbes that it's carrying to travel up to surprisingly long distances. So they estimated up to six meters for a cough and then eight for a sneeze, um, and also linger in the air for up to 10 minutes. Um, And those can vary a bit based on environmental conditions like temperature and humidity. Um, So, yeah, that was just pretty... Pretty wild. So even if you, as you mentioned, if you sneeze, you leave a part of you behind (laughs) for for a bit. I'm so like just because I don't really understand what you said. Um, Sure. (laughs) So when you, it's less dense than the surrounding air. So why doesn't it just float up like a balloon? So as it uh, as it like slowly great if we didn't have to worry about like sneezing in our elbows, we just sneeze into the air and it goes up. (laughs) Just send it out. (laughs) Sneeze into space space. (laughs) through the ventilation pipes everywhere else. There is a point at which it is more dense than space. Yes. Yes. And then we got raining sneeze droplets. There's a thin <laughs> sphere of sneezes all around this our planet in the yeah. atmosphere. Well, the the sneeze sphere. The sneeze sphere. <laughs> well, to answer that, the idea is that as it uh, sort of grows and like disperses, it does actually like incorporate some okay. of the air around it, and that's what allows it to eventually settle right. down. But just the idea was prior to this that the larger drop- droplets that you expel, which are consequential in that like. Basically, the microbes that you can distribute in aerosols in this way do vary with the size of the droplets that are carrying them. So it was always thought that the larger ones would just drop more immediately because they were heavier, while the lighter ones would stick around and float further. But actually, of a certain size is where you start to see this this cloud that actually forms, and then it can stick around for an unexpectedly long time until it is dispersed. Yeah, this this kind of plays into Fred Hoyle from an earlier, earlier episode. The guy who was like, diseases are from space. Oh, yeah. But he had the whole weather map of disease, and he was like, on days when it rains, people get the flu. And like... <laughs> Like not true, oh my God. but like he would he would love this data and yeah. be like, yes, you sneeze into the clouds <laughs> and it rained back down. What? I definitely imagine him as being German. Like you sneeze into the clouds <laughs> and then it rains down diseases. <laughs> so clouds, they sneeze on you. <laughs> His name could be Clouds. 
<laughs> Question three. In a 2018 paper in the journal PNAS, Nice. Back in our bullshit. Uh, The authors grew airway lining lung cells from cystic fibrosis patients in the lab to study the viscoelasticity of the patient's what? Okay. So, okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of glances, and I was like, are they just deciding who wants to say Well, Rob's face went, ooh, when you said viscoelastic, because that's like his thing. I love viscoelastic things. (laughs) Um, And then I was like, I looked at him like, all right, Rob. Say the answer. Yeah, and I was waiting for it, but like, I mean, epithelial tissue? Like, okay, so they, something, they think there's something about the viscoelasticity of whatever cells that they grow that are like, from that have cystic fibrosis that are somehow deficient in viscoelasticity? Well, no, so they generated this lung lining model, essentially, in the Mm -hmm. lab to study the viscoelasticity of something that is... Very critical to patients with cystic fibrosis. Oh, is it their phlegm? Yeah, yeah. their mucus. Oh, mucus. it's like mucus. mucus, that, mucus, mucus. Oh, so like the whatever the lining produces mucus, yes. and they use that. Yes, exactly. Wow. Yeah, it's you're a mucus nuts. farmer. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> one way of looking at it. Yeah, but yes, mucus. <laughs> Very cool. Very important. Very underrated. Um, but this finding was really neat too. So. As I mentioned, uh, the researchers grew cells from patients and healthy individuals in a way that they actually secreted their own mucus layer. According to the lead author, they looked like miniature versions of real airway lining, just in a dish in the lab, um, to study differences in mechanical adhesion, so like sticking to airways, and cohesion, so sticking to itself, um, of mucus and cystic fibrosis, um, and then use this kind of model to compare different types of therapies that help break up the mucus. So generally, mucus is composed of about 98% water and less than one percent of these really sticky polymeric proteins like glycans? oh no are they not <laughs> they they are glycoproteins yes but okay. they're mucins uh, it's like the special okay. that's where mucus mm. comes from mm-hmm. um but this gives our mucus its gel-like properties and allows it to coat our mucus membranes and serve as a natural barrier against small particulates pathogens all that icky stuff um but in cystic fibrosis uh that mucus is 10 percent mucin so quite a bit more uh, or there's, so there's quite a bit more mucin in these patients' mucus than typically. Um, and as a consequence, they have a much more difficult time clearing it um, without the aid of therapies that either increase the water content of their mucus or chop the mucins themselves into smaller pieces, essentially. Mm. So they generated this system that allowed them to test these different therapies in tandem individually, and it just gave me an excuse to talk about mucus. Mm-hmm. Um, also, on a side note, we used to think that mucus uh, helps our lungs actually get rid of germs by entrapping them, but it's actually because it acts like a slip and slide and disrupts Ooh. bacteria from latching onto our airways and growing biofilms. Oh. So with mucus, they just go, wee, and then, <laughs> and then you're good. Nice. I just think it's really funny. Okay, question four. What are crackles, ronchi, and stridor examples of? Stridor, crackles. not strider, not aragorn. Oh, Strider. those are, um, aren't the, um, these are like, you, if you listen to someone breathing, right? Yes. So it's like with a stethoscope. It's mm-hmm. like, breathe there, and then they move it to somewhere else real cold, and then yeah. <laughs> you're like, and you're like, oh, your lungs shouldn't sound like, ah. <laughs> so is that what it is? That is it, yes. I can definitely imagine crackles. crackles. Am I going to die? Because I definitely know that from my own breathing. No. 
<laughs> okay, you can't you can't generate them just here. Okay. But um, but so yes, they are abnormal or as they're medically called, added lung sounds that are detectable during auscultation or listening to your lungs with a stethoscope. Mm. Um, and I do know this is a podcast, but trust me when I say that I'm doing everyone a favor by not playing these sounds over the air because they just. <laughs> They sound unsettling. Um, But so crackles, to go quickly, um, also known as crepitations and rails, are, as you would expect, kind of like crackling, clicking, popping noises. Um, And they're heard during inhalation or inspiration um, when you have collapsed alveoli or small airways that kind of pop open because they're surrounded Mm. with fluid. So when you have like inflammation or edema, like in um, influenza or pneumonia, tuberculosis, bronchitis, you can hear the kind of crackling from the fluid. Do you ever get any, like, pops as well? Or, like, snaps? Yeah. God damn it. I just fell right into that. <laughs> just got Rice crispy Lung. <laughs> rice crispy Lung definitely is a real thing. That it it has be. to be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Um, for the other ones, Ronky is just, like, low-pitched wheezing. That kind of sounds like snoring. Um, and it's just air passing through fluid-filled, like, bronchial tubes. So, um, and things like COPD and cystic fibrosis. And then Stridor is high-pitched wheezing. Um, when you're inhaling from like upper respiratory obstruction, actually. Mm. So mm. if you're like partially choking, that kind of very particular wheezing. Um, also croup, which is like a respiratory illness that babies can get where they mm. sound very distinctive, that kind of thing. Like so. that squeezy penguin toy from Toy Story 3. Yeah. It's like little squeakers broken. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> Do you guys hear that? sound of something i'm gonna edit out <laughs> just give me that silence nice nice <laughs> question five per humorism how might you describe someone who's pretty chill like low-key goes the flow but maybe he's kind of bordering on apathetic how would you describe them um let's see is that choleric or is that sanguine well, <laughs> I mean, sanguine is blood. Yeah. Um, that is, yeah, I don't know. Uh, wait. Sanguine is like much more not chill. Choleric might be like apathetic. And I can't remember, like, there's something about bile. I mean, you mentioned <laughs> something, it earlier. There's something about bile oh. is a great <laughs> sequel to There's Something About Mary. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, I forget, is mucus another humor? <laughs> Uh, yes, but the particular mucus that you expel from your lungs. Ah, phlegm. Yes, phlegmatic. Phlegmatic. O-P-H-L-E-G-M-A-T-I-C. Exactly. Nice. Yes. So humorism, the idea, of course, these four substances or humors in your body. Oh, humorism. I... I thought what you meant you like hear? funny. Yeah. Oh, no, I heard humorism. The, oh, the I thought humors. it was like I thought yes, you meant like yeah, yeah. witticism. In the world of stand up oh, comedy. I, that's how <laughs> definitely how I heard that. I was like Got it. But you know, I, I that's let me just say that's not the reason I didn't get it. I just thought that it was gonna be like in in among humorists, you know, I like see. humorism. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that came across, but Rob was like it, talking about the humor. No, so like, yeah, right. yeah. I didn't it, even put that together. It took me a second, but I had my Emily filter on. And <laughs> I was Emily like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you she, had your she wouldn't talk Portuguese. about jokes. <laughs> Who are we kidding? Okay. I was like, what, what scholarly thing could this be? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, so as you mentioned, you went through a bunch of the other ones like sanguine, uh, choleric, melancholic, and then phlegmatic. Okay, so I didn't, I never, uh, I've, didn't understand that you were going through a list of things that were humors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, can you explain a little bit, like what 
Yeah, so the four humors themselves, like, you know, like the four, like, substances, real slash theoretical slash multiple ones, like, all looped together. Um, they were also associated with temperaments. So the idea would be that, like, yeah. not only if you had, like, certain imbalances, you would feel ill in certain ways, but you would also behave outwardly okay. in certain ways. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I kind is this, I mean, yeah, I, guess, I feel like I this is associated with, like, Greek and Roman physicians, like, because, Galen was into humors. Yeah, I was gonna say, with all your deep dives into Aristotle, I'm surprised, because <laughs> maybe he did, wasn't uh, a practitioner of these. Well, you maybe know, they're later. And I wonder if, is was, like, bleeding a thing in, like, classical medicine? I'm sure it happened. And so I'm just wondering if that's, like, the root of that. Like, if you're too sanguine, is that what it is? You have to, like, have less, less blood. blood. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, mean... They would probably bleed for that. That's kind of, I mean, maybe. I will say sanguine is generally all really nice things. So, so like, if you're sanguine, then you're just, like, very, like, you're very lively and charismatic and enthusiastic and extroverted. So I don't know if they're just kind of like, this person needs to calm down. Like, (laughs) you are too extra. We are bleeding you. I mean, I do. But that does sort of, to me, like, fit with the sort of repressive Victorian, especially sort of, like, upper class culture. You have too many, I don't know good qualities let's yeah. bleed them out you're of a little you. too happy to be alive we need a yeah we need to shut this down yeah it was before a phlegmatic transplant was available <laughs> you just like cough into someone's mouth so we were we rob and i got into like a twitter exchange with uh with taste of science yeah i think so, so taste of science great organization mm-hmm. many good talks uh including the one that i just went to on the flu influenza um, right, yeah. where you won the flu-based trivia. That's Obviously, true. that's our whole thing. Got like 18 out of 22 <laughs> questions correct. Sorry, lab of the speaker who lost to me. <laughs> <laughs> you alone. I mean, Rob, you do teach an infectious disease course, so it's not like yeah. it's not also, like that's not fair. Also, Loki, the speaker's wife, was on our team. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Anyway, um, we got into this thing. They posted online one of their, I guess, I don't know if it was one of the events trivia questions, but it was like, uh, in during the Spanish flu uh, in Arizona, what normal greeting did they stop giving? And I, <laughs> I responded to their the Taste of Science Twitter, uh, the the traditional cough right into your friend's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think I used it something else too. Yeah. Every... Well, then I think I posted this study that Emily just mentioned <laughs> oh, about yeah. coughing. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. But, so it's amazing, uh, and we can edit later if we don't want to mention. But um, our friend Rachel Richards. Yeah, uh, Ray was on our team, and she was oh, like, yeah. "Rob knows the answer," and I was like, "I do." She's like, "Yeah, you just posted with Noah," and I was like, "That was a joke." <laughs> <laughs> no one coughed into right each other's face. The... <laughs> Hello there. Uh, uh, open wide. <laughs> mm. This is how misinformation spreads. Yeah, it's, it's bad. Contagious. I see you've had lunch today. <laughs> what is that, herring? Distinctive oh <laughs> cough. For... Your your phlegm is. Okay. <laughs> I'll stop. For the for the record, in 1918, handshakes were illegal in Arizona. Right. But yeah. yeah. I for, mean, for those of you keeping score. <laughs> for those of you keeping score at home, if you had handshakes and not <laughs> cough right into your friend's mouth, you are not a sociopath. <laughs> right. Exchange money, settle the bets as you will. Okay. <laughs> Question six. Budimir Sobat is the Guinness World Record holder for doing what for 24 minutes and 11 seconds? That's hold your breath. breath. Underwater. Un- yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I added yeah. that. Only because, well, you know, is it different? <laughs> yes, it is. Oh, because there's extra pressure on you? There are. Okay. So I don't know if you're going to get into this too. I, do, I mean, you're the swimmer, so go nuts. So the record for holding your breath out of water is less. And the reason 
we believe is because there are like uh, sensory nerves in your skin that yeah. tell you you're in the water mm. and that it kind of induce you to oh, like cool. slow down your breathing. Well, I, I, I believe you. Um, I would also imagine that floating takes sort of more postural stability, sort of muscle exertion than we think. And that mm. that might be absorbing some of your extra oxygen to use to like create energy for that. I, that's that was well, my that, first instinct. That would be that would mean that the water record would be shorter. But the water oh, record the water yeah, is longer. longer. It's longer. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so oh. Yeah. So basically being in water your body responds by being like I'm in water and like it changes the way that it metabolizes. I would that's also so argue that you might actually be like generating less exertion yeah, when but, you're floating. Yeah, but when you're sta- I mean, when you're doing it on land, nobody said you had to like stand. You could just be like That's true. Yeah. Down. But also yeah. like when you're doing a breath holding well, contest underwater, down. you're not necessarily like unsupported. That's true. Yeah. That's also true. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, the other so thing- how is this record achieved is the question. <laughs> <laughs> well I'll say a caveat too is that for so not necessarily um in typical static apnea competitions, which is what this is called mm-hmm. athletically. Mm-hmm. Um uh, they don't typically do this just for like normal competition, but when they're setting world records, um, they will like breathe uh, pure oxygen for mm-hmm. half an hour mm-hmm. prior to attempting. Um, so that yeah. does kind of affect the numbers they get. I mean, certainly if you look at records without doing this, they're like half. Um, Did like David Blaine attempt something like so, this? Probably. Yeah, do you know what this David is? Blaine held his breath for like nine and a half minutes on a couch, like after a month of mental training. Wow. Like in earnest, okay. he just held his breath. But there. without the oxygen. Without oxygen. Yeah. Just able to do it. And that kind of set him down this path of becoming like, I'm going to hold my breath forever. And so he did the stunt where he locked himself in a, in a glass ball of water in Times Square for a week, at the end of which he like took off his oxygen mask and then tried to hold his breath and break the record. Um, but he, he failed to do so for numerous reasons. One of which was because he was just a prune, like in a tub of like gross water. And it was just like, if you're going to break a record, like you want perfect conditions and he gave himself the worst possible conditions. Um, but yeah, he got very into it. Yeah. I think he probably also got what he wanted out of it, which was everybody looking at him in Times Square though. For a week. (laughs) And like, he like literally slept in there. Like he's ridiculous. You know, the really great thing is that he should be the ball that drops on New Year's and then at the bottom it just crashes and it's, (laughs) (laughs) you just get a fruity David Blaine. (laughs) (laughs) Kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to be honest, he looked awful when they, because then he like, he like tapped out before the record time. They had to like pull him up and give him oxygen and like save his life. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, he was wearing like manacles and things to hold him in place underwater and all of his flesh under there. It was gross. He looked awful. Oh, Jesus Christ. Speaking of like pruny fingers, I, I have thought of this many times and thought, wow, I should really verify this. And I, but I believe that this, uh, it was told to me by people who seemed as though they were citing a scientific study. So I'm going to say this and then you're going to all act with, you know, your own discerning attitudes that the, and I'm, I, but I do think that this is a thing that the pruniness of your fingers in water is not actually just your fingers getting waterlogged, that it's actually created by your own nervous system in order to improve your grip. Yes. And that if you cut the nerve, it doesn't happen. That nerve that goes out there and it be like, basically like that would, that would send that signal. Yeah. This was mentioned on a prior episode of our own podcast. Oh, I was that's say, probably why I thought it was bullshit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Damn it. I know I heard this somewhere. Completely irreputable. <laughs> no, I mean I, I have 
I mean, I definitely have heard that many other times. I don't even. Yeah. When, when did we talk about it on the podcast? So uh, I think you one. actually mentioned it then. But I, it was it was the it's a fact I've episode. been bringing up a lot. Episode. Yeah, because I mentioned another fact, or my quiz included like a different fact related okay. to pruning, mm, and then you mentioned yes. that. Yeah. Okay. Were and, you talking about like pruning shears or something? And I was just like, here's something irrelevant. No, it was like the the <laughs> so weird studies kind of observing like how the patterning of pruning oh, sort of like right. resembles right. Yeah. Like okay. And, and my neat. experience was that people who spend two to five hours a day in water oh, actually prune right. more slowly. That's right. They do have sort yeah. of like a like a homeostatic sort of habituation kind of thing. That mm-hmm. is fascinating. Yeah. And I love the idea that we're like you know from you know our ancient selves are basically just geckos. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, a lot of record holders in static apnea uh, are competitive free divers, which then prompted me to read way too much about free diving, which is essentially an amalgamation of all my worst nightmares adapted <laughs> to a competitive sport. Yes. <laughs> like, the hell so uh, essentially uh it's a form of competitive or professional free diving um it's called uh competitive apnea so this basically entails <laughs> yeah right like, it's like every night when i sleep like people are like <laughs> how many snores per hour like, <laughs> exactly. like, noah wakes up in the morning and someone's like you won <laughs> <laughs> what's this medal for I don't well, I'm, I'm only the third i'm only the third best at snoring that's why i only got a cpap <laughs> there you instead go. of a a or B pap. <laughs> you guys got it, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, We're just really, sure. really nice medical device humor. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Very nice. Um, yeah, so competitive apnea basically entails competitors free diving into a body of water. Um, kind of like there are sort of various like subversions of it that include fins or not, or like weights to weigh them down to a certain distance they let go of or not. Um, but they win based on setting a certain distance, either in depth or horizontal distance in the water, before coming back up for air, which just, why would you do? Oh, that's, like, that's like plunging <laughs> for distance. But speaking for like, uh, speaking for like, but you don't breathe like well, that's just... what no but plunging for distance like you mentioned i think in our second episode now our that we're first, talking about like, that probably hey, had the, fir- oh, the, yeah, the first one yeah. um oh, was uh was yeah you just, but that was so much like that you was dive, so much tamer though I, and you, it, it was only a minute down. exactly yeah. a minute oh, it was true, right it was true. within a certain time constraint how far you could go this is just kind of like how I mean, long can I you stay underwater without dying i don't think i i mean maybe if i no i don't think i maybe I don't really think it would be pleasant for me to hold my breath for a minute. So <laughs> if plunging for distance, I still consider like part of that. Fair. But it's <laughs> self-enforced but it, apnea. <laughs> right. But it's, yeah, this, I mean, this is a bit more dangerous. And uh, it, I think I may have talked about it on this show also in some mm-hmm. other episode, but yeah. the Bajau people, they're an island yes. nation. Is that what you're looking yeah, at? I literally yeah, was yeah, just yeah, looking yeah. that up so I could remember that fact. Are you going to talk about it? No, I wasn't. So go for it. Yeah. They're they're just an incredible story of like they, they've kind of uh, all lived together in an island for m- many, many generations and they free dive kind of to find food. They go down for oysters yeah. and, and other shellfish mm-hmm. on the bottom. So uh, typically the men from the culture are very adept divers. They can hold their breath for long periods of time. It was discovered both men and women of this culture have incredibly large spleens. Mm-hmm. Whoa! And you're like, so what's the spleen got to do with? What spleen got, got to do with it? it? Got to do with it? But what spleen? But a second handy organ. <laughs> Secondary organ. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, who who but, needs anyway. a heart so, when your spleen, spleen can? Be broken. Be broken. When your spleen is in motion. Enlarged spleen. 
Anyway, what are we talking about? <laughs> we'll work on it. This That's is, a wrap, guys, right? I think we're done. <laughs> this, is, this is going to the end of the episode for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but your, your spleen is a filter. It is useful. It's a filter for blood, and so it holds a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. And what happens is as the divers go down, the pressure on your body will actually reduce the volume of your spleen and push more blood out. So you get a burst of new red blood cells with oxygen going through your body. And it's, it's like a kind of replay, uh-huh. isn't it? It's actually splashing water on the face or something like that. I remember, maybe that was some, I, well, oh, I that, think that, that was some aspect of induce it. That the thing that induces it is like if you get water splashed in your face, that your spleen contracts and that pushes out relatively oxygenated blood and, and gives you a little bit extra. And that may be related to that, that kind of somatic response to being in water and holding your breath longer. Right. And so I remember this because it came up and it was like, uh, I think it was like University of Copenhagen or something, but there was a graduate student there who was a graduate student in genetics. um, And it was that sort of the gene that was responsible for it uh, ended up being mapped to something called PDE10A. And that's a gene that controls the levels of thyroid hormone T4. And basically Mm -hmm. just in because they have this you know basically adaptation that increases their thyroid hormone whatever t4 levels they get this increased spleen and that just basically gives them an extra bladder of oxygenated blood that they can squeeze out when they need it and lets them dive a lot deeper and what's so amazing about this for like i think it's like a thousand years these people have been living this particular lifestyle which is selected for this particular Mm -hmm. you know like job within this community um there's also i just found uh popside did a cool article about this looks like two years ago and claire maldarelli a common guest on the weirdest thing i learned this week was mm. the author so shout out to other trivia spouting podcasters Ooh. in the realm yeah. nice all right question seven the longest lived fish in a zoological setting in the world who was a resident at chicago's shed aquarium for 84 years and has been described as both lovable and iconic was what kind of fish? First of all, that is not even close to the longest lived fish observed in the wild, which is, I think, like 500 right. years old, and it's like a sure. shark in Greenland. Yeah. Right. So, zoological here, I feel like normally that means, like, protected from predators and it's going to yeah. live a bit longer. Here it means zoos are not doing great. <laughs> at least for this type of, uh, well, at least for a Greenland nurse shark. I don't know about other Sure, fish. but, like, how many zoos have been open for 500 years? Yeah, give them uh, a chance. Lots. <laughs> London. The Tower of London had okay. animals. But if we're in talking it, about shitty zoos. I don't know. If, I don't know if that was in the 1500s. <laughs> it wasn't great for that whole time. It definitely, at a certain point, had a bunch of like random, dangerous animals in the Tower of London. It yes. was it was long enough to go to be not appalling, but but not, I don't know if it was like a hundred years before Shakespeare was popular, <laughs> like 1500. I'm not sure. Anyway, right. But I think those zoos were definitely not going to increase life expectancy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I do like the I idea that I would start counting at those zoos. <laughs> I do like the uh, idea that the Greenland shark that was 500 years old or whatever when it was found was just like you hear this new kid Shakespeare. It's <laughs> like 120 years old hearing about Shakespeare writing some poems. Anyway. Yeah. What, uh, what was the question? What what type of fish? What kind of fish? And is in Chicago. Uh, is that he, is that gonna get it? Something native Chicago, to Chicago. But the the what? most <laughs> clear hint that I can give is the theme of this quiz. Lungfish. Lung fish. Uh, there you, there go. you go. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it's a, is it a lungfish. A lungfish. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna I'm edit this in. Oh, I know it. It's a lungfish. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> oh my god! Obviously. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Well, I was gonna try to reason if it was like a native, like freshwater Great Lakes fish or something, but just a lungfish. Just want to tell the story. So, so yes. So 
He was a lungfish, and his name was Granddad. That's bad. It's so precious. Come on. Granddad? I honestly read that and just like spontaneously started crying. I was like, I can't. This All right, was, but what, this really what did old he... old fish named Granddad. What did he used to be called? That's just what he was always called, which admittedly, when he was a new fish, I didn't really yeah. quite get that. What but do you he, call this one six-year-old he grew into fish? it well. Redfish Granddad. Yes, exactly. So... Just to briefly talk about lungfish, sure. they're pretty cool, and they are so-called because they have both gills and a lung, or a pair of lungs. Um, so whereas other fish uh, gas exchange at their gills, or um, in some cases can use these kind of specialized gas bladders, lungfish are the only fish with proper lungs, like ours. So they have complex structures and air sacs inside that, like our lungs, maxify, maximize that surface area where gas exchange can occur. Um, and this also means that they can breathe air, like get oxygen from air, like get to the surface of the water and be like, Hoop, and then go back down again <laughs> as a fish, um, which is very cool. <laughs> um, and allows them to basically um, retain more oxygen in the environments they're in, which are often these kind of like shallow pools or riverbeds in warm mm. tropical environments that will have a lot of fish kind of burying themselves in the mud. And mm. when you get a lot of fish in evaporating water, then you get right. less oxygen. So these oh, guys that's can like, take it. Well, that's like, in, you know, we live in New York and there's a lot of weird places called like fish kills and stuff. Oh, yeah. And a mm. fish kill is like when a shitload of fish just rise to the surface because they're dead. Yeah. And I think the idea is there's just like an abnormal concentration of life in that area in some way that's taking up all the oxygen out of the water and they all just die. Yeah, and they can't get I think that's what a, it's called a fish kill. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that a kill is... Uh, that is called a fish kill. So it's unrelated to the name. Yeah, like the town kill. of fish kill. I think like kill is kind of like... Ville like a suffix in a different oh, suffix. I yeah. see. I oh. kind of was just assuming like I think a kill is just like I think it's a body of water. So okay. you'd be like ah. Great Kills is yeah. a place in Staten Island, right. and Fish Kill is a place upstate. Yeah. But I think it was but not. I know. Named I after, know that that is what like that's called. Like where where you just in yeah. in a localized spot you get like a ton a of mass fish. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's called a. I'm pretty sure. We'll check. Okay. <laughs> it's called yeah. a fish kill. Um, I and that. I, I just had noticed that was there are a lot of similar named places around here. But anyway. yeah, I'm currently reading a book uh, to go to a Science oh, great. Friday book club. <laughs> yeah, it's my first. <laughs> but I'm reading a book by Dan Egan for a Science Friday book club this week. Oh, or, which will be several weeks after before this podcast actually airs. But <laughs> but it's all about the life and death of the Great Lakes, and it talks oh, yeah, about yeah. like okay. all the things that humans have done to kill millions of fish in the Great Lakes every year. Right, and just like like one point there was a year where they changed like the flow patterns or they introduce like a new invasive species and like a billion fish it's like salmon or something right or well, it has been it's been so they've introduced uh, saltwater fish other freshwater fish asian carp like all kinds of things that oh, have yeah. like threatened the great lakes i think asian carp luckily have not made it to the great lakes they're mm-hmm. in the mississippi river yeah, system right and they're working this, their way up there's this electrified uh kind of dam oh awesome. in the in the chicago canals that they're not supposed to be able to cross but like who knows so it's 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 a really interesting book, and I was trying to remember why I started talking. About it. Oh, because they talk about all these big kills of like okay. all the, these moments where like oh, and all of a sudden a billion dead fish floated on the shore, and it uh, sucks. Okay. Well, anyways, back to Granddad briefly because I love him. Um, so he was acquired by the Shedd Aquarium in 1933 for the Chicago World's Fair, which wow. is bonkers, right? His favorite foods were sweet potatoes and lettuce. Oh, <laughs> see there that's it adorable. is. <laughs> And he likes it mushy. Because <laughs> his teeth don't work so good no more. 
Exactly. Um, but at the reporting of his passing in 2017, due to old age, he was estimated to be about 100 years old. Um, the aquarium president, Bridget Cowlin, said, For a fish who spent much of his time imitating a fallen log, he sparked curiosity, <laughs> excitement, and wonder among guests of all ages who would hear his story. And honestly, same goes for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, this one's for you, Granddad. It's really good. <laughs> Question eight. Sea cucumbers and some turtles are unusual in that they have respiratory air bladders on what part of their bodies? Anus. Yes! Nice. They're cloaca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Which I mean... Which is just an anus and a urinary tract yes. and a reproductive tract all in one. Um, I know... I, I feel like I'd heard about that, not about sea turtles, but it makes sense that it's more... Uh, broadly distributed to that, but there is a certain kind of turtle that I, I I feel like I heard about this more in like a lake or river sort of thing. The Fitzroy River Turtle, uh, aka right, sticks, the bum breathing exactly, turtle. Yes. That's exactly why I knew that. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's a great um, name. <laughs> but so even even better because this just kind of spurred a just oh my god just what I learned from this fact is marvelous. <laughs> so um, as I learned in a really great article written by Ed Young a few years ago called "How This Fish Survives in a Sea Cucumber's Bum," there is a fish <laughs> called a pearl fish, and if you look at it, it's this very kind of like stringy, sleek, sort of like wormy looking guy. And it looks like a string of pearls. Is that the idea, or is it? No. So it takes up residence in other uh, sea organisms like shellfish. So because they've been found inside oh, of oysters, so like, like next a to pearl. pearls. Mm. Exactly. So like shellfish, starfish, but especially not because it looks sea like cucumber. a string of beads. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you said stringy, and that's what made me think of. Well, I mean, they well they do crawl up sea cucumber anuses so yeah, yeah, yeah i get it cloacal beads yeah. <laughs> i was like okay okay I, I get it i see it but anyway so yeah so some pearl fishes are parasitic and eat away at their sea cucumber host from within not great but other ones honestly just want to hang out there for shelter and although they typically live by themselves sometimes scientists will find a whole bunch of them like 10 or 15 just hanging out in one sea cucumber anus and we don't know why they do it but there is one quote in this article by an expert who was interviewed on the topic, and then his theory about why they congregate is just, if indeed the 15 fish entered for sexual reasons, one cannot help but think of the orgy that must have taken place inside of the sea cucumber. Can't one? Not? All right. There is one more element of this story that I wanted to share because I think it just kind of ties like a really nice little bow on this whole quiz. Um... One thing we do know about pearlfish and this relationship they have with sea cucumbers is that they somehow remain unaffected by a toxic compound that sea cucumbers secrete called saponin. And we know how they stay protected, and it's because they're covered by a barrier of, wait for it, mucus! (laughs) It all comes back to mucus, guys. And that, my friends, was a lung quiz. Excellent. Well done. (laughs) So let's take a breather. (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening and i presume shouting the answers to my lung quiz very frustratingly into your radio uh if you'd like to check out more content from us you can find us on instagram and twitter at fax machine pod and on facebook at fax machine podcast we're also on social media i'm at underscore em costa rob at sweater vest sci and noah at arcs and sciences and before we go, just got to plug, oh, one more time, our next live show happening at Caveat in the Lower East Side on March 25th at 9 p.m. The theme of the show is This Is Your Brain on Brains. Woohoo, Brains! Yeah, here, yeah get ready for brains. a lot of that. <laughs> 
of fucking course. And uh, tickets are currently on sale at faxmachinepodcast.com and also um, at caveat.nyc. So nab those up and we'd love to see you there. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.